That was a sermon right there. This morning we're going to take a look at three verses from Luke 23. Luke is a doctor. He's done his interviews, and in the beginning of his gospel, he talks about giving an orderly account. And so we've spent some time here in these last few Sundays just thinking about these last few days of Jesus' life, and we get to these critical three verses you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you. It'd be helpful to see it as we read it, page 884. And we're going to reference Psalm 31. So if you want to just find that in your Bible, it is a psalm or song that Jesus sings on the cross. Psalm 31. Let me just read these three verses from Luke and then we'll have a moment to just reflect on them quietly. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I use the illustration of a coda. A coda is uh, a part of a performance, and in my case it was watching my daughter do ballet, where you would have all the dancers come on the stage at the end of the dance as a way of saying, here's everyone who participated in this big performance. And what the choreographer would do would be to make sure that each little troop of girls got their time at center stage. It was brief because you had to get everybody up on center stage at some point. And so we talked about this last week, these different people that came to center stage. Peter, the chief priests, Barabbas, the thief, Herod, Pilate, they all had their little moment with Jesus. And I want to continue on in that illustration and bring three more people to center stage, or maybe better said, show you three more groups that come. But this is unusual because these aren't encounters with people. The first is that comes to center stage with Jesus here in verse 45 or 44 is creation itself. The second is the curtain. And third is a conversation with God. So I want to examine quietly in the darkness, so to speak, what's happening in the darkness. It's these final three conversations, as you would. These final three performers come up with the King of Kings and take center stage. Very brief conversations, very brief things taking place here, but very powerful. So, Lord, would you just help us see 
what we need to see here from you to reorient us and change us at the cross. Creation. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. The sixth hour to the ninth hour is noon to 3 p.m., so it's in the middle of the day. And Luke's, I like Luke's concise description, the sun's light failed. It, it wasn't just a physical reality, although it was dark between noon and 3 it was a physical reality intended to draw your attention to some deeper spiritual realities. And there's more than the ones that I'll give to you, but here are three of them that I think we're supposed to see. First, the darkness is almost always a sign of decreation. In Genesis 1.1, before God spoke, here's how the Bible records what was happening. The earth was formless and void Darkness was over the watery face of the earth. So before God spoke into our world, our world was a watery chaos. And the Spirit of God is hovering over this watery, dark chaos. And then he speaks, and you remember what he says? Let there be light. It's, it's darkness without God's word. It's darkness without God. In Noah... Genesis 7, there's a decreation. And let me just read it for you. Genesis 7, verse 17 says this The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly. The ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed. This is a constant repetition. Covering the mountains, all flesh died. Decreation. Birds, livestock, beasts, swarming creatures, all of mankind, everything on the dry land, dry land who had breath died. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. And the waters prevailed. So because the, the sin had gotten so great, it reached such a, a fever pitch in Genesis 6, creation responds to the sinfulness of man by decreation. And you get a little hint of God's spirit moving similar to Genesis in Genesis 8, or Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind, like a spirit, blow over the earth, and the waters began to subside. So you can feel this recreation happening right after this decreation. Jeremiah 4, God's people uncoupled themselves from God's word. And here's Jeremiah's description. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and void. 
and at the heavens, and the light had gone out. You feel that? When the, when the light goes out, it's chaos. When the light goes out, it's, it's darkness, it's formless, it's void. In Colossians 1.16, Paul describes Jesus this way, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we're not surprised if all things hold together when the creator is dying, creation responds by collapsing. Darkness in the Passover. If you remember Jesus' death here, his last week, the reason is in Jerusalem is because of the Passover. And the darkness at the cross is an echo of Exodus. The ninth plague, remember what it was? Darkness. And the reason God sent the plagues, if you remember, we talked this about this a few weeks ago. He sent it to say that all, each one of the ten plagues responded directly to a God in the Egyptian worldview. And the chief God was the sun, Ra, R-A. And so when there was darkness, it was a way of Moses saying, or God saying through Moses, hey, Pharaoh, you're, the not, you're not the most powerful person here. And your gods, even if they don't exist, they're underneath my God. And it's a way of proving it, be saying, I can blot out the sun. Your most powerful God bows to me. So in the darkness of Luke 23, it's a signal to those who are in power that God's in control. Think about the centurion. He's standing at the foot of the cross. This is a hardened, hardened soldier. Very familiar with death. Very familiar with power. What is he thinking when it goes dark? I bet at least he's thinking, I'm not in control. What about Pilate who sentenced Jesus to death? Do you remember the last conversation he had with Jesus? Let me remind you, John 19. Pilate said to Jesus, don't you know? I mean, just try, try to imagine this. Don't you know, Pilate saying this to Jesus, I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? This man standing next to the creator of all things is saying, I have authority over you. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from my father above. So when he's in his palace and it goes dark, I wonder what he's thinking. I guess I don't have as much authority as I thought. See, the darkness is meant to send a signal out to any other challenger that God's in control. He's the most powerful. Remember what the tenth and final plague was? The death of the firstborn. So after the darkness in the Exodus was the death of the firstborn. In Luke 23... After the darkness was the death of the firstborn of God. 
There was no lamb to allow death to pass over because Jesus was the lamb. In the Exodus, following the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh let people go, let slaves free. When Jesus died, he let us free from our sin. So when you feel this darkness, it's an echo of Exodus. I'm sure every Jewish person there would have understood that. Third, darkness is a symbol of judgment. The prophet Amos was primarily concerned about the lack of justice being done in his day from God's people to the poor. It's why Martin Luther King quotes the book of Amos in his famous I Have a Dream speech. He quotes this, Amos 5.24, We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. See, Martin Luther, the, the preacher, the pastor, he's channeling this frustration Amos has saying there's from the people that are following God, they're not giving justice and you're in the way of God's judgment. Don't you see it? That's how he was using that. Despite Amos's warning, God's people fail to do justice and listen to what he says in chapter eight. Hear this, you who trample the needy, on my day of judgment, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. See, it's not an accident. Justice has to be done. Evil is winning. And something has to come in, and God's judgment is going to come in. And there will be a judgment day, Amos says, when the sun's going to go down at noon, and in broad daylight it's going to turn to darkness. And what he didn't know was he was telegraphing this moment. But fascinating and so helpful for us is that God's justice is coming down on who? God. It's not coming down on the people. Aren't you so glad that God had a way that when his justice came down, it got diverted to Christ instead of coming to us? And so it's dark. Creation itself is part of Luke's coda. These three hours take center stage. One commentator says this, darkness was the creation's quiet response to mankind's putting to death the creator. Verse 45, the curtain. Matthew's gospel provides all the detail that we need that the curtain is four inches thick. It's in the temple and it separates the holy place where the priest would operate and it separates it from the holiest of holies, the holy of holies, the place where the, the ark is. And once a year, the priest would go in and, and offer atonement for sin, but there's this thick curtain to make sure nobody stumbles in, nobody gets near the holiness of God. And Matthew, Matthew describes the curtain being torn from top to bottom. Interesting little detail. I think it's God's way of saying, I, I tore it. Nobody could have torn it top to bottom except for God himself. It's to emphasize that he's opening up a barrier that now no longer exists. And there's at least two ways that we need to see what's happening here. First, 
The tearing of the curtain symbolizes the termination for the need of the temple. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but it's, it would be hard to, to exaggerate how big of a deal this was to the Jewish people. For 1,500 years, they had been following God around in a tent. Remember the tent of meeting or the tabernacle that was amongst the people, and then when they finally sort of settled in Jerusalem, they take the, the tent and make it a physical building. And so this is the place where God comes down and meets with people, and this is where you come several times a year to meet with God. And then Jesus shows up and saying, hey, we don't need this anymore. He says this, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, meaning Jesus. So much more could be said here, but primarily what we need to understand is Jesus came to the temple and clearly stated after 1,500 years of you guys coming to meet with God, this temple is no longer needed. From now on, if you want to meet with God, you're going to meet with me. Now, if you're a Christian for some time, you think, okay, God, I got that. I just want you to try to feel afresh how stunning that would have been. That a regular Jewish-looking man would have walked into this huge, ornate temple that for 1,500 years represented how you met with God. And he says, all of this stuff, all of these priests and high priests and sacrifices and curtain and ark, all of that's going away. Now, just look at me. Can you imagine someone saying that? This is, this is one reason that these kinds of statements by Jesus eliminate Jesus from just being a good moral teacher. It's just not possible for somebody to come on the stage of the earth and say, I'm collapsing all worship to just come to me and him just be a good moral teacher. That's just not possible. Great moral teachers don't say things like that. They don't say the only place where you can meet with God is with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by what? Me. It's either true what Jesus said or it's ridiculous. Those are the two options. You can't say, well, he has some good things to say and we should sort of take out the Sermon on the Mount and kind of pick through that and some of the laws we like and we just kind of push things together and Jesus did some nice things. No, he couldn't. He was some egomaniac. It was ridiculous what he did or he was God in the flesh. C.S. Lewis, and you've heard this before from mere Christianity, says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, like, worship me, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil, the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. You and I can at least appreciate the people who have been worshiping 1,500 years one way, and then this person saying, I'm going to tear down the temple, and you don't need it anymore. You just need me. Those people, you can understand being upset. The curtain was torn because Jesus terminates the old way to get to God. Second, the curtain was torn because it inaugurates a new way of you getting to God. And that is through the death of Jesus. There is a way back home. All the Old Testament has been a, an account, a story of saying, I'm going to come get you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to make a way. You, you walked away. You broke something open, but I'm going to repair this breach. I'm going to mend it back so we can have a relationship together. And so just for a few minutes, I'm going to go total Bible nerd on you, okay? So just hang with me. And just if you say, I'm not picking it up, that's okay. You can go back and look at the, the transcript later. But I just want to do Bible nerd for a minute because I believe just seeing the tapestry of the Old Testament that, that has several different threads and then they tie together right here is really beautiful. Number one, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden where they previously met with God. It says this, The Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim, an angel, with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're cast out the east of Eden, and the only way back in is you've got to face this angel that has a sword that goes every which way. You, you couldn't possibly get back in, in other words, without being torn yourself. The angel, the cherubim, guards the way back to God. Exodus 25. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. So they're making this tent of meeting. In the Holy of Holies is going to be a, a, the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of it, the lid, so to think, think of it like this size... It's called the mercy seat, like a bench, like somebody would come down and judge. At the two ends are going to be, you know what? Cherubim. Make one cherubim sit on this end and one on the other end. Exodus 26, 31. And you shall make a curtain. So, so you've got the Ark of the Covenant. Now we're going to make a curtain. A blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine linen, and it shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. So even when you're approaching, even when you're coming, you see the cherubim. Everyone who would have approached would have remembered Genesis chapter 3. You can't get in there because the cherubim is guarding them. And even when you get in, the cherubim is guarding. There's no way back to God. The high priest comes in one time a year. He has a rope wrapped around him so in case he faints or dies in the holiness of God, they don't have to go in and get him. They pull him out. 
and he takes the innocent blood of a lamb and sprinkles it on the mercy seat, saying every year we need forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10. We have confidence to enter the holy place. Mm. How are we going to do that? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. We can enter the Holy of Holies to meet with God. How? Because Jesus' blood and his flesh was torn. Jesus went through the cherubim. He took the flaming sword of God's judgment so we could then enter into a relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? Yes, that's the answer to that question, yes. John 20, one more Bible nerd verse. Mary stood outside the tomb, the empty tomb. As she wept, she looked into the tomb and she saw two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at one end, one at the other. And in between were the Lamb of God who had been slain. And the angels aren't holding swords. Isn't that incredible? The whole Bible is telling one great story. And it all gets tied up here, right here at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. My question for us today is, God has made a way. Have you come home? Let me end here, verse 46, with the conversation. Jesus' last words recorded by Luke were actually a song. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's actually a song. It's like singing a line of a song that you know. Sometimes you wonder what was on Jesus' mind at his death. And the answer to that is primarily songs. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know that's a song. Psalm 22. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a song. So Jesus has got his favorite song list going through his head at his death. They're not just random statements. They're parts of a song. And this is why Mark Dever, a Baptist preacher in Washington, D.C., says this. Songs are so important because when people are dying, they won't be recalling my sermons but they'll be recalling the songs that we sang. And I don't know if you've ever been in a hospice situation with a dying person who's a Christian almost all the time. Can you sing me the songs? Can you play the songs? Richard Troutman, a beloved member, died a couple of years ago from COVID. And so I got to watch his daughter and his wife crawl into the hospital bed with him as he moved from this side to the other side. And they were singing songs. And my guess is Richard didn't even know the difference because when he came, they were singing songs. So Jesus is singing these songs. 
He's not able to sing the whole song. He's just singing a portion of the song that must have been rattling through his head at this such a difficult time. And in Psalm 31, just listen to the first five verses. It's called a song or a prayer for help in trouble. <laughs> of course. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness would you deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. I mean, just think, Jesus is singing this song. Be a rock and refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me and you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge and into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It's not by accident that Jesus stopped his song with the first half of verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He doesn't sing the final line there, that stanza. You have redeemed me. Why? Because he's doing the redeeming. On the cross, Jesus was redeeming you. He he was depositing his life into the hands of God. So God could take Jesus' life and deposit it in me. This is what's so incredible. It's the divine exchange. God, I'm giving you all of my greatness, all of my goodness to you. I'm depositing it into your hands so that you can then deposit it on Paul's sorry life. So that when you see Paul, I want you to see me. And all that Paul deserves, I'll take it here in the darkness. You and I get Jesus' life and he takes your punishment and mine. That's the gospel. I wanted, before we come to communion, just to take a few moments some space to just consider for yourself in a little bit of a darker room how great is the father's love for us and prepare your hearts for communion